11 at best. I'm Sam Mall, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, big banks in the U.S. are set to make a 20% profit if President Trump's deregulations go ahead. Google and Walmart team up to take on Amazon, and we discuss the impact that online porn has had on digital banking and payments. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Sam Mall, and today is my pleasure to be hosting my very first episode of Fintech Insider. Today on the show, I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, David Brer. Hi, David. Hello. Taking a selfie. Jason Bates. Hey. Drinking a beer. And Simon Taylor. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm good. It's been a very good day, by the way, for 11FS. We're, I think, pretty pumped up. Right now, I've recently joined. I think I'm in my third week, my first week in London with the team. The one thing I've learned is that music is always on in the office via Alexa. So I'm actually throwing these guys a challenge, which is for each of these stories, you need to give me a song which summarizes. Oh, you could have told me before the show. No, it's even better. So I'm going to start. We're going to jump right into the news. The first one is from Bloomberg, which is big U.S. banks could see profit jump 20% with President Trump's deregulation. My song for that is Sympathy for the Devil by Rolling Stones. I think that's incredibly applicable. Seems pretty I'd fitting. For, I'd go for The Boys Are Back in Town. Oh, oh <laughs> a positive spin. Wow. Um, well, I do think it's interesting because I think if you go back to what many historians will say was the exact date when the recession started or the Big Depression or whatever you want to call it, I believe it was August 9th, 2007, because I Googled that right before the show. So we are literally... 10 years past the world almost imploding, and here we are talking about deregulation and the profits for the major banks. And also what we're talking about is uh, the central banks starting to make noises about, oh, actually, we think that there's a subprime car loan problem and we think there's a subprime private debt issue. So we're building up debt. Okay, it's not in mortgages this time. Mortgages are slightly better than before, but we're building up massive amounts of debt and we're just about to take away all the regulation that we built up during that period. Well, certainly in the US, maybe not in Europe, but it's looking like that could happen. Yeah, great. The be a profits jump, but at what cost? Well, you, you talk about the U.S. If you take a look at what's happening right now, the second quarter of this year for the U.S., profits were about $48.3 billion. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the S&P 500 from a stock sector, banks were number one. All right, so they're doing okay. Yeah. Despite you know, Dodd-Frank, they're still around. Like, yeah. they're, they're hanging in there. Yeah, you know, and, it, and as President Trump said, you know, you just can't get a loan. You just can't get money. So we need to roll back some of this regulation, which it, it's fairly interesting, you know, from my own perspective. On one hand, we're a consulting firm. Banks are our clients. We would like them to have a little bit more capital to spend, mm-hmm. as, right? I mean, we get that. But yet, again, I'll come back to the profits. It's, it's interesting the banks that they said which would benefit the most from this would be, for example, JPMC which had, I believe, record earnings again this year. So, you know, it's this yin and yang. I think uh, globally, in the past 10 years, banks have paid out 350 million or 350 billion in fines right chase well com- but compared i guess to europe where we're seeing psd2 we're seeing capped on interchange i mean we were talking about this earlier you know in the us it can be still 2% on a on a debit card charge where in the in the uk and europe it's down to 0.2% right. uh, and now now banks in the, in europe are being forced to open up with psd2 but but so on one hand, you can look at regulation and say it's bad for banks in you know in very a variety of ways. But equally, maybe it's not pushing the innovation agenda as it would in Europe because regulation's not forcing you know banks and that that infrastructure to to improve. Are you saying that European banks are more innovative than U.S. I, banks? Look, we're five minutes in. Have we got to an us and them already? Yes, <laughs> we have. I, I'd, I'd say definitely that European regulators are more progressive than U.S. regulators, and I and I think there's there's almost like a cause and effect there in terms of that, that that piece you know there's that's the reason that we're seeing so many different countries whether it be Singapore whether it be the US in terms of emulating the things that people like the FCI have actually been doing but I see that now with the US regulators the CFTC launched their fintech lab and the OCC talked about um, their innovation outreach program so I, I think that message has kind of come but if you think about what the regulation was that made the FCA successful it was increased competition it wasn't hit the banks necessarily there was a bit of that I'm sure and, and, and in continental Europe there's a lot more of that but the mandate for the UK was increased competition and that's why we've seen challenger banks and that's why the regulator has a mandate to increase 
increase competition and reach out to fintechs. I think we might see a little bit of that in the US if they deregulate, but deregulation is not a one-size-fits-all thing. And when you talked a moment ago about the fact that Trump's saying you can't get a loan. He's speaking to middle America there. He's speaking to the small business owner who just can't get a loan. But repealing the entirety of Dodd-Frank doesn't help the fact that banks don't want to lend to certain types of businesses. Well, here's here's what I find interesting, all right? I mean, and we're generalizing when we talk about this deregulation, okay? Um, you know, if you read the, the, the post by Bloomberg, you know, what we're talking about is all within the regulator's control. This doesn't have to go through Congress. But what I find, and, and again, I, I think you can talk to just about anybody in banking in the U.S., and they said reform is needed, right? It has stifled some growth, right? And and, and there, there is that issue there. But what I find funny is the projections by the study say that JPMC and Morgan Stanley would benefit the most from these changes. They'd see a net profit increase of 22%, where most of the stymied um, results that we're seeing from the regulation aren't actually with the big banks. They're with the mid-tier and smaller community banks, which have been making the most noise about Dodd-Frank. Mm-hmm. So it is rather interesting that even rolling this back, where you, you don't actually achieve this. the result you it, wanted. Welcome to the United States. I'm so glad I've joined this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to st- start talking in a like a British accent, Sam. <laughs> like fully commute, that would be fine. You, know? yeah, you only did beer. five years here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not not near enough. I mean. Within within the confines of 11FS, regulations, a regulatory side is needed. We we don't ever argue that, sure. right? Or I need to go back and you know. No, jobs. no. I I think if if anything, it's been the you know the the spark that's actually changed most of what's happening in European banking right now, which is phenomenal. I think what's interesting from a fintech perspective, though, on regulation is that. It's not seen, uh, I think traditionally, there's been something about the uh, the amount of money you can make from customers, the how close to the wind can you sail in order to make the most profits. You know, there's, there's, there's very much been a, this is where the line is. And so, you know, you'll do everything you can. Uh, fintech at its best rises far in excess of the, the minimum possible outcome for consumers, at least as I sort of envisage it. So, uh, so there's such a greater alignment with what the regulator is trying to achieve that, that it makes a very different conversation. And that, that's definitely not the case in the big banks, is it? You know, like regulation has been the bar of customer experience for like a decade, which is just terrifying, isn't it? And, you know, we see wholesale changes coming forward, like you say, with PSD2. And actually, you know, how many banks are out there who are just doing the bare minimum? You know, I, I kind of believe that there is a still a huge amount of them that aren't looking at the opportunity that they can get from it. And that's going to be the, you know, the, the car crash uh, that they uh, probably weren't expecting. Well, I don't know that car crash is the best segue for the next story, but I'm going to use it to move on. We had a, uh, a story submitted from Fegan, I love that name, on our FinTech News. Uh, it's from the BBC that the co-op stake in bank falls to 1%. <laughs> did I read that right? Co-op stake in bank falls to 1%. Yeah, so the co-op bank has, has had an interesting few years. Um, it was originally owned by uh, the Cooperative Society, which uh, which I think if you asked anyone in the UK, they'd expect to be like this single national business, but it's not. The co-op group is this brand of which there are a number of consumer cooperatives that sit underneath it that provide various services. So you see the, the co-op brand on the high street or on funeral services or on bank or on all kinds of things. And they're different. They're actually different cooperatives. So members of those organisations uh, spend money with that that particular provider and get a um, get a, a a return. They get a dividend. They get a, a share of the profits. It really is a cooperative in that way. And so a bank was formed uh, quite a long time ago in order to create this uh, to provide banking services to these cooperatives. And you know, was a uh, the cooperative society was a bigger owner. They sold off, I think, a few four years ago um, a big chunk and went down to 20% and now they're down to 1% because for a variety of reasons that we've spoken about previously in the in the podcast um, the bank's just been going down for quite a while so five large US hedge funds have uh, put together a 700 million pound rescue package of which they write off 440 million pounds worth of debt and add in 250 million pounds worth of funds this is a very poorly poorly bank isn't it it is. I mean, 
the co-op, for all of its faults, has four million customers still. And they are like stalwart, ethical, you know, people. They're people who see the co-op as being just the ethical bank on the high street. And now it's 99% owned by US hedge funds. So the question is, you know, do, does the actions of the bank, do, do its new owners in, in all but that 1%, change that does does that change in any way it's kind of like your whole foods trader joe customer had a bank right it's this like slightly upmarket slightly organic brand that now suddenly is distressed because it i mean there was a comedy of errors in the management of the past couple of years uh, and they've really really struggled to turn a profit and you can see that co-op who are who are very protective of this brand they've built up over over many years are now kind of pulling back and pulling back it's interesting that when hedge funds come in and, and treat it somewhat like a private equity purchase they're sort of saying we can turn this around we can turn it to profitability but there's a huge discount there and it's interesting that um as you were saying about the financial crisis uh, and the regulations that followed it it wasn't necessarily the big banks that have disappeared it's some of the small ones this is an example of that this is an example where that mid-tier bank i mean if you compare the size of four million customers it would be like a medium-sized midwestern bank i guess this is something where there are customers out there as jason said that could potentially lose services, change services. What's their future look like? I think it's it's really interesting, and, and maybe just to continue your song game going a little bit, can I suggest Snoop Dogg drop it like it's hot oh, on wow. this one? That's uh, better than Lee Greenwood's I'm Proud to be an American. Uh, uh, it, it, it feels like sort of fitting on this one. But but sort of, I, I guess the, the there's been a lot of things sort of made recently about, you know, the outages that somebody like Monzo's actually had, and actually the, the level of um, customer loyalty that you're actually seeing. Like, all of the things that have happened, and to your point, you know, this is millions of customers who have gone through all of these these changes, seen all of this stuff happen, all of the problems that the bank have had, and they're still sticking by that brand. You know, like that is a that is a true brand that people buy into the principles of. Are these and apologies because I don't know, are these urban customers or more they do you're nodding. See I'm surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, young urban professionals and yeah. up to sort of uh, your middle class um, white collar worker who uh, lives in the suburbs, and then you get uh, quite a few of these in villages and towns. It's it's kind of everything from young professional through to to that white collar uh, suburban. Okay. But but traditionally, co op did everything right. Like they like cradle to grave. Like those guys mm-hmm. would literally bury you, not not in debt. Like the you know not that wasn't a go at the bank. I'm but just they saying have a it was service. Just, yeah, indeed. Yeah, like they literally will bury. You, you know? And my stepdad was an embalmer for the cooperative funeral service. Now that is something I did not know. Wow. <laughs> FinTech Insider trivia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing that I'm I'm fascinated with at the moment is the uh, is this member based proposition. You know, building societies, credit unions. Like if ever there was a time where it just seems to fit, now is it? You know, crowdfunding, ICOs, everything seems to be moving to that peer to peer peer own thing yet building societies credit unions the co-op seems so old-fashioned and also the the products that they've arguably launched have been very banky Mm. but but is that not the so they they generated a community you know like i i can uh, remember in uh yorkshire where i'm from despite the accent um but the the idea that the the community was galvanized around a a central point which was the co-op in various different guises whether it be you know your funeral or whether it be your bank account whatever um but is that not the role that actually a lot of the challenger banks coming into the UK are actually fulfilling now? You know, could we not argue that something like a Monzo is actually kind of a community bank now in terms of what it's doing because of how it's approaching developing that community and making people sort of galvanised around a thought? And that thought could be, you know, making banking better or it could be that we're rewarding our community and coming, like Simon has both hands up. I think he has a point. Yes, we're all dying on this one. So um, Seth Godin talks about tribes, the, the author. We now subscribe to a tribe it doesn't matter where you live in the world if you like uh, stripy hats you find the stripy hats tribe if you like goths you find the goth tribe there's and a stripy hats tribe th- th- there needs to be people like Kat <laughs> and the hat man you, you need to you need to get with dr seuss uh so but you can find your tribe and monzo have found their tribe i believe but they've done it in a digital way and it doesn't matter where you live in the world you can find your tribe uh, and so that old community being physically based is moving into a digital community but it's the same idea so how do you transform those old ideas and put them in a new context I think is super interesting but it's not unique to the to the UK I mean Cross River Bank in the US um, as a credit union have been doing some interesting things Sam well I mean it, I, I bank 
with my local credit union, which is fascinating when you think about the clients that I deal with, right? And yet, my money's with my local credit union. Go figure. Which I think there's a whole other show, by the way, that we need to dive into. Let's move on to our next story, though, because um, there's so many good ones today. This one, I, I love the community. We're talking about community. The community that we have with 11FS, I love. The Crispy Noodle. Best name ever submitted this story. Barclays now lets customers make payments via, via Surrey. I personally came up with the best song for this, but you know what, Simon? I'll throw it to you. Yeah, I didn't have a song name in in, in mind. Say I, my name. Yeah, Destiny's, Destiny's Child. Child. Yeah. <laughs> that is good. That is good. like there's a whole authorization process there. With, with I'm pretty sure Beyonce didn't think about it. Didn't she? So, but. She's clever. I disagree. Yeah, well, anyways, I like this story. The core of this is accessibility, right? So Siri and voice has been the thing we've been playing with for for some time. Will will your Amazon Echo, will your uh, Google Home, will all of these devices become the way in which you interface with financial services and any other consumer company in the future? Good question. Uh, But actually, this is not trying to be that, and I respect it for not trying to be that. Barclays have actually said... If you want to make payments via your mobile app or directly into Siri, you now can. You can talk to Siri from an accessibility standpoint. If I have, uh, if I'm visually impaired in any way, and I, but I'm running my phone through Siri to be able to make a payment to somebody I know. Yes, it has to be pre-configured, but I, I can get help from branch staff to get that done. I think this is spot on with what a, a bank that has done things like digital eagles and really helped people with technology can really do. This is a, a fantastic example. I do. Want to make a, a secondary point um a secondary point hold on <laughs> hold on like when did we get into secondary points we can we can stick a pin in this one <laughs> pin in it um i do think there's something to be said about how you do voice right now this is doing voice right for a niche and they've done it right but i would say that there's something about getting the voice interface right and there's a whole discussion there that needs to be had at some point is that but- a commentary on siri or just commentary I struggle with Siri. Uh, it's, a, it's a commentary on the imagination going into how you create the conversation with a customer. So Jason always talks about real-time intelligent contextual. So if you know that my paycheck is about to arrive, why not tell me that through my voice interface rather than just a no- notification? And would you like to do this now? And I answer simply, yes, I authorize this. That prov- uh, It's almost that people have expected us to go to the machine and tell it to do a thing, not that the machine would say to us whilst we're at home in a context of being at home that you could do this thing now so i think there's something about con- contextual use of voice that's really missing but, but but not in this case they've done it right for the niche they've done it for right but we, we talked about this earlier today jason where using older models for new technology because i remember the first time i saw capital one playing around with using alexa to make payments and you were still using a pin you're still using some sort of phrase which i love because you're standing saying quite loudly alexa uh, zero zero five one. Sorry if we've pin. set off yeah. your echo, like, everyone. Yeah, now. exactly. M- Michael's going to have to bleep all of these out, <laughs> isn't he? Like, yeah. But yeah, the thing that I love most about this is that Barclays have got out there and tried it. I mean, they've yes. actually made it work. What's the use case? What's it for? You know, how will it work? You know, in a, in a small way, they've gone out there and and put it put it out there. Will a is that particular device the best way in order to make payments? We don't know, but we're, we're finding a voice for it. Um, on the accessibility, oh, it's my secondary point. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> on the, Jason's uh, getting good at mocking me today. <laughs> yeah. On the uh, accessibility viewpoint, um, I, I did a tweet earlier in the week to the uh, Royal National Institute for the Blind, the I RNIB. Did, I did a tweet. I did Jason a tweet. tweets, people. I did a tweet, people, um, about because I think that banking for the blind and partially sighted is a perfect PSD2 use case. So I really think there's an interesting thing there with pulling a group of people together, putting an interface together in association with people who are expert in in those areas that then use APIs in order to deliver like best-in-class interfaces for particular groups of people. So if you're interested in that, tweet me, people. I'm, I'm making that happen. All right, let's 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 move on to our next story. This one's from Finextra. It was submitted by Andrew Earl. TransferWise lines up investment round. So I'll give you this song, NWA, Don't Believe the Hype, maybe. All right, so, tr- like, I love the song, like, NWA, Don't Believe the Hype, but actually, like, on the basis that these guys are, this is going to be pushing their valuation up to, what is it, 1.5 mm-hmm. billion? 
Like, this is, like, serious unicorn territory right now. So, like, actually, the idea that TransferWise is actually gaining more money. I I guess the thing that I'm a little bit, and, you know, I kind of punish a lot sort of mainstream banks who basically go out and say they've got a bunch of money and what that not really what they're doing with it and this seems to be sort of a reasonable sort of consistent case with a lot of the fintechs that are coming through so transfer wise gaining an extra 60 million dollars what are they doing with that i think that's yes. lazy headline writing because we've talked um previously in previous episodes about all the things transfer wise are doing they're launching the multi-currency account they're trying to become a bank they're they're pushing into small businesses like all of those steps you can see why they started with consumers they got a use case that worked it wasn't very profitable but it gained critical mass adoption and they have partners with n26 so they have a partnership model and on the other hand that's solving problems for small businesses around international accounts and being a bank and 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 could get there but yes this this what are they going to do next is an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think the industry have, have seen TransferWise as a marketing organization predominantly. That's the thing <laughs> that they've that they've just nailed, though. Done I mean, very, they just very nailed well. it. So you know, and and we, the amazing come on, thing we can't have a go at people for being good at marketing. No, no, I'm not. It's, it's I'm like, like our thing. They've right? been. It's been awesome that, that they built a business, arguably on on rails that through APIs you could you know make cross-border payments with whether that's currency cloud or Earthport a variety of other players um, to uh, to build the brand and you know unicorn status off the back of that and I know that they've got a great engineering team now they've really built off the back of that um, but in order to to take that which is a, a tough market to be in it's very competitive across the world with Western Union and other, and, and other players and now to actually be expanding to arguably take on HSBC and City in multi-country you know the acceptance of payments and multi-country accounts and now becoming a bank and now becoming this and you know that that's amazing and 60 million off a you know one point something billion valuation that, that's nothing it's not I mean, a big equity giveaway is it no. like they've, they've not sacrificed a lot of the company to do that and i think also they gave the banks a bloody nose with the marketing and they're still here i think there's something to be said for that but have they not done a push to try to partner more and more with banks did i not read that the, the, so they they are customers of some of the world's largest banks exactly. because if you're going to move money around you have to be a customer of the bank the old argument was they are vc funded arbitrage in other words the vc is subsidizing the cost of these transactions because they're not very profitable but the second part of that is that may be true however they're now looking at one scale so if their margins are thinner can they scale and can they go global and two if their margins are thinner can they move into use that platform to move into other more profitable businesses like small businesses and so on and that like you say it's that's the pivot you know like they're pivoting into how do they distribute international transfers through things like current accounts which totally makes sense but i I remember sitting on the steps of the royal exchange near bank and watching christo and the guys like plant a massive tea in the ground that broke all of the payment and just being like these guys get marketing. Like these guys, like really get marketing. They were uh, in their pants too, if not mistaken. Uh, uh, underwear for the. It was 40% a. It of was listeners. a. Yeah, it was a. It was a cold September day, and they like just like they did it, and they got like, and the press was crazy off it. So you know, I think making a splash and getting to like congratulations, guys. Like we should say, actually, there's a, a takeover show that's going to be happening with Transferwise soon. So I guess these are all good questions we can ask to them. I guess last last on that the one of my. Couldn't you believe I actually have a favourite blog on remittances? <laughs> Man, that says a lot about you, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry, that made me laugh an unreasonable amount, but that's so Jason, it's unbelievable. It's in a Google Doc. Saveonsend.com. Go and have a look on saveonsend.com. They have like breakdowns and teardowns and looking at the business model. It's like it's it's really cool. You're my favourite kind of weird. Dude. <laughs> uh, that's a good quote. You need to write that one down. All right. Speaking of global and speaking of press and media. We are, our next story is from a, a, a press that I read every day, the South China Morning Post. It's fantastic. This one is submitted by Fegan. Jack Ma, which this is already a great story because it's got Jack Ma. Alibaba does a thing. Right. They, they, there's a financial unit has bought Mass Mutual for U.S. of $1.7 billion. Yeah, thanks to Gary for, for submitting quite a few stories this week. That's on uh, fintechinsidernews.com, where we talk about these things and also submit a lot of the stories. Um, 
So yes, Jack Ma backed Yung Feng Financial, which essentially caters to the wealthier individuals uh, and has been broadening its reach uh, recently. Uh, they made a robo-advisor and they managed the wealth of sort of Chinese Hong Kong investors. And they agreed to buy an Asian unit of Massachusetts Mutual Life, which I don't know if you uh, you know, Sam, um, uh, which adds offerings like death benefits and annuities. And I think there's a couple of things that interest me here. One, like Chinese company buying U.S. infrastructure, U.S. you know financial services, interesting. Um, and, but secondly, also this, um, uh, I think there's something about these new contexts that are emerging. Because on one hand, Jack Ma owns you know Alibaba, Alipay. There's that whole sort of transactional everyday banking side. On the other hand, he's put a lot of money into a into a different firm that handles the wealth benefits. You know, and I'm I guess I'm interested as to what you guys think um, in terms of how these new areas of focus emerge. Whether there's there's one financial platform, whether there's emerging financial platforms like social media you know there's not one social media platform twitter facebook snapchat all have sort of slightly different contexts and uses i see sort of market consolidation but around new areas of focus yeah look at jack mon what he's done and and what ant financials done it's that whole concept of building the full ecosystem it's everything for you right especially in china where you have that well, you're well beyond the growing middle class, right? I mean, there's not a part of the world I can't travel to where I'm seeing Chinese wealth. A good move. Fantastic move. Uh, I actually assigned a song to this, which was Pet Shop Boys. Let's make lots of money. I believe that's the name of that song. Is it not? I, I don't know. I go ABBA money, money, money. I'll be honest with you. Like that, that scene, like any time Alibaba gets or Alipay gets brought up, like that's the, the theme tune that's going what in my head. What was the theme tune to The U.S. Apprentice where it was like money, money, money? Money. Why are we doing another Trump? Uh, <laughs> we're only one per show, only one. But, but I like I'm come back to challenge that idea of one platform for all financial services because I don't think there's there's not one social network. You know, Snapchat does person to person, Twitter does me to everyone in the world, Facebook does like a community thing. And I think that there are areas where now there's the everyday financial services, there's the me sort of medium to long term. You know, th- there's a, there's there's different areas of where you could see dominant players yeah. coming. But uh, but I guess that's the um, almost like the beachhead those those guys have actually started at. So LinkedIn started with your work life, but actually starting to feel quite Facebooky now, isn't it? You know, wanting to be your sort of morning read in terms of what they're doing. So I, I like I think lots of different people are going to start in different places. And similarly to the TransferWise story, actually they they started in uh, in global transfers, but that they've moved into other things because they've been successful. This is not something new you know banks did this they just did it so long ago we were not even like twinkles in the eyes of our our, our mums and dads type thing so you know i think these things will will happen but you know success breeds people kind of getting a bit sort of uh, green-eyed at somebody else's revenue streams and kind of going after them as well well let, let's move to our last story before our first break and this is from the financial news submitted by our good friend nigel walsh hello nigel nigel one of these days nigel we'll be in the same room this is the fintech trade body chief steps down dave what is yeah, this yeah i do you know what? i don't have a song to go with this one i'll be honest here but i have one but i don't think any of our listeners know what this is quiet riot anybody oh god what, what? Depressing. Bang your head by Quiet Riot. Nobody. Man, I'm gonna like I'm gonna hit up Spotify after this and see what these some of these songs are. But but the, I guess this is this is sad news. So like uh, Lawrence Wintermeyer, who's been on the show a couple of times before, is stepping down and, and moving away. As of the end of August, I think it was. How long was he in the role? Two years. Yeah, two and a bit years. And actually, the you know innovate finance and project innovate has been a a kind of a major driver for the the innovation and changes that we've seen within the uk market so you know it's really sad to see lawrence step away from this but i'm sure he's going to be uh, going and sort of causing havoc in something else so uh look forward to seeing what you're doing next lawrence well i, I think two years in a role like that is more like it's like the dog years in all honesty right so it's probably more like Which 14 is fintech years yeah. in fintech years probably 20 it was like two <laughs> decades worth but i i like i genuinely miss 
like one of the things that I missed most of sitting in level 39 was Lawrence coming around to our office and being like, guys, look, this is the thing I want to say to you guys. And and then like just reeling off like 20 minutes of like absolute gems. So like, uh, Lawrence, we'll, we'll have to get you back on and uh, and you can like drop some of those gems on the show. But, but we've just been talking to, a, a, to a, a big bank exec about the length of time people now stay in roles. Mm. And actually, you know, it's down to, to one and a half, two years maximum for for really senior people. Uh, and that interests me, that whole, you know, it isn't the 20 years with one organisation now, but if you're at the top of your game, you are moving around, you're doing things, you're actually, you know, moving to do that. Well, we, we've talked about that in the context of, like, CDOs a bunch of times before, right? Because actually, fundamentally That's everything... collateralised debt obligation, it's Chief Digital Officer, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the idea that, uh, you know, everything is culture change and culture changes everything, then actually everybody is there to, like, move the dial. And actually, you know, moving the in a big organization and, and you know Lawrence and the guys have been working with governments and regulators and all of these things so the fact that they did so much in that period of time is phenomenal well since since we've given a couple of shout outs now to Lawrence and evidently I've never met you but looking forward to it you just swing by so I can say hi all right well before we hear from some of our sponsors we wanted to give a shout out how'd you like that to a couple of people who've recently given us five star reviews on iTunes and some of these by the way have been incredible. I've read them like over and over and over again. Did we pay these people anything? Well, I think we should just for the first one. <laughs> Manchester Max Ward, who I'm guessing lives in Manchester. Sarah Deacon and Howard Reese, thank you so much. We absolutely love reading reviews, and we do, because we, we do take them seriously. We love the feedback. We really appreciate the, the five-star ones, obviously. Keep them coming. Now let's take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. Boom, boom, boom. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by SmartDX, a smart communication solution. The days of managing capital markets documentation using Word docs and emails are over when you use SmartDX in its innovative, collaborative negotiation environment, built by the industry for the industry. SmartDX simplifies drafting, negotiation, and execution of all capital markets documentation for all asset classes and product types while giving you transparency, control, and digital data that can be extracted at any point in the process. Learn more at www.smartcommunications.com backslash SmartDX. So I want to welcome everybody back. You also want to thank our sponsors. So as we dive into the second part, of the news story here. The first one, given a nice U.S. slant, is from the New York Times, who, everybody, please subscribe. Fake news. Be, be a rebel, please. You know, it's amazing that the New York Times subscription has skyrocketed under President Trump. God, every time I say that, I take a drink. Um, this story is actually really good. It's about Google and Walmart. They have partnered with an eye on Amazon, which makes sense. I went with the song tie-in of Taylor Swift bad blood, which makes sense, because here we're talking about crews, right? It's it's lining up to go against Amazon. Is this too little too late? I guess that's the question, because Amazon Echo um, and Alexa, first in the market, has done extremely well. I believe the numbers that I saw, the estimates are somewhere between 16 million and 18 million Dang. devices sold by them, whereas Google Home is around five, I think, five million to six, well behind Walmart. But, I mean, we've been talking about voice, and we keep reading about voice as the new platform. It's voice as one of the new platforms, right? I mean, really? Yeah, I, th I think, like, building off the stuff that we were talking earlier on about Siri, you know, like, we're seeing so, like, we want to put music on in the office. We don't sort of, like, fumble around with Spotify. We actually use Alexa. 
Raptor. You're going to have to bleep that one out again. Ham Siri. Yeah. No, the the Siri you're kind of fine with. So, so long oh as I don't say... Oh, my God, all the bleeps. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, Stop. No, but Siri is fine. No, no, so you long can as say, I, hey, Siri, and it, it wakes device. No, it doesn't, because but, but that's the thing. So if, I, if I say... <laughs> no, if I, if I actually say, hey, Siri, it only, it only activates my device, not everybody else's device. Whereas, actually, if you say a letter, it, it does it for anybody. <laughs> So that, that's that's the problem. We could be talking about any topic right now because all you hear is bleep. We might as well drop in some real bad swear words just to like use this bleep. The thing that I think's interesting on this is I can't think of a a lower place pairing that has managed to topple you know the first place winner. So uh, the, the 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 pairing that comes to mind with this is Microsoft Nokia. You know, so okay, Apple is out there. So actually, who wants to to take them on? Well, what if we get together and we can take on that guy? Now, Google's a bit of a different beast in this um, because you know, Google Home, machine learning, uh, voice stuff—they are they are just you know crazy, crazy good at. And c- if anyone is is well positioned to take on uh, Amazon, then you know this is Google's home turf. Well, Google and Walmart. Let's let's exactly, take that to another exactly, extent. Exactly. Two, th- these are two massive beasts. Yeah. With a lot, a lot of capital to spend. And Walmart Labs have done some interesting things. Yes, they and have. Walmart have massive global supply chains and have been doing more in digital. They just they are definitely the ones feeling the burn of, of Amazon the most. This just doesn't feel very good. Google to me as a pixel owner like it's just it's just a oh, bit well, wait a minute go back what did you just say as a pixel, <laughs> as a owner? pixel owner like that's uh, the most pure Android fanboy. Google phone experience there are pixel yeah. phones being held Laura up around Downer the room there are a lot of people up. that believe the true religion and not your false gods um, so yeah. like if that's the case if that's the case that like Google just aren't Ah, duh. like like I get them supplying uh, organizations that aren't as good at data with data, and maybe this is just a great press release. But it's been positioned probably more by the Walmart side as a fifty-fifty partnership. To me, it feels probably like stuff Google did anyway. Walmart are being taught how to use. Does this work with Asda? I didn't read deep enough. I very, I very much doubt it. So I yeah, but like, damn you, Simon! Like that, exactly that point. You know, like li- literally, it kind of feels like everything that comes out of Google that is great is about aggregation. You know, it's actually, you know, like my Google Flights thing. Like that is literally where I go to make oh, that thing God, happen. Right. Because it's not about like if I'm going to be flying with KLM or if I'm going to be flying. Like usually, I fly out of Norwich, so it's usually KLM. I'll be honest with you, but but like the idea that actually this is tying them down to a specific provider of that capability then actually that that feels like like you say just completely it's not, not very Google. Google. but is it or is it just the first provider on the platform because to simon's point like this sounds great from a walmart perspective this is uh, suddenly getting into people's home new channel new direct delivery from a google perspective it's like yeah you know is it an exclusive relationship have they had that talk but this is a google thing <laughs> moonshots right they're, they're okay to fail I don't Google think it's that. I don't think it's that. I think it's Google selling their prowess in AI and cloud to enterprise, which Amazon Web Services has done cloud really well. Uh, other people, you know, even Oracle are getting into the cloud space. IBM and do a lot in like the cloud has kind of been done, but selling cloud and AI together is something that I think Google, I imagine, are really wanting to do. And they, we saw um, a few months ago that they'd done something with HSBC. We're getting these announcements coming out. I think they're trying to move into the enterprise space, and they're. Super Superpower is that they are probably the best in the world at selling AI and using it themselves. Well, let's move to a, a feel-good story, at least for me. I, I like this one. On Business Insider, there's a company that helps students in developing countries go to top universities, and they've raised $240 million. Simon? Yeah, so this is a company called Prodigy Finance. So they've got a, an idea that they help students in promising places like India, China, and Africa fund their university studies by connecting them with rich alumni who loan them money based on their future earning potential. Love that model. Like that. That's a good idea. Isn't Excellent. that an interesting idea? So you're paying it forward. You are literally in the position where you came through and had a good university and you look after the next generation. But as an investable asset class, hey, this university that I went to, I know it produces good results. I'm probably going to have a good way to uh, spend some money, save some money, and get a decent return out of giving this loan. It's, it's spot on with what's been going on in peer-to-peer lending, but it's got that nice touch to it. Now, it's important to say that of this uh, $240 million, 40 million of it is equity funding led for by Index and Balderton um, and AlphaCode. Uh, but actually 200 million is a global is a debt facility by an unnamed global in- 
investment bank. So interesting way of doing that. They're, they're financing loans, but they're a sort of peer-to-peer platform. So it's it's, it's kind of like a, got a little feel of SoFi to it, right? SoFi is loaning to, you can go into Stanford. So we know you're going to make a ton of money and we're getting it. You know, we're going to lend to you. As somebody who never went to university, I hate that assumption. I really do. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, hit a sore spot. Yeah, and you use a Pixel phone. The the whole idea, though, that that sense of community, we've talked about that earlier, right? And that tie-in. Um, I don't get why we have Jackson 5 ABC. What, uh, like, is that you? Like, basics of ABC, like teaching people, okay. you know, like, you know, like really sort of like, like low. Well to sing. That's going to Oh, that's better. better. You went to Jason. And you're healing the walls by Michael Jackson. Yes, <laughs> one thing on that is in in one way where you know it's student loans. You know this is student loans, peer to peer student loans. The fact that it's alumni adds a nice angle to it, but in the end, still it's about student debt paying for you know education. In, in this in this case, the majority of Prodigy's finance loan goes towards MBAs. So that is kind of interesting. And in some respects, you've got you know a lot of people in in Silicon Valley and beyond talking about you know the the pain of especially in the US accumulating vast amounts of debt before you've earned a penny. The second highest debt category in the US underneath mortgages, student loans as a father of four. Wow. Let me tell you that. So so on some on one angle you've got the great alumni third world countries, you know, peer to peer. They've got some nice VC words in there. On the other hand, you've got you know, student loans, you know, uh, and the whole industry of education. And I, I don't know, there's something there's something, you know, there's a veneer there for me. Well, let's move on because this next story is one that is, is uh, I think we're going to spend a little bit of time on. This is via TechCrunch from Andrew Earl submitted this, and it's about N26. They've now announced that they have half a million customers. Yeah, so 17 countries. They had 300,000 customers in March, 500,000 customers now. They report that they're accumulating 1,500 customers a day. Interestingly, it's not you know daily active, weekly active, monthly active users. So th- there's a big thing with these right. with challenger banks that I you know know so well that um, that it's it's one thing to to list the number of people have signed up. It's a very it's a very different thing to talk about the number of people who are using this daily. Um, but their their main active uh, markets are Germany, Austria, France, Spain, Italy. They're definitely sort of growing that. And yes, they've they've reached this milestone, which is which is a great milestone for a, a challenger bank that's actually spread, you know, internationally. It's really sort of gone for it, not in one territory, but almost looking for those very early adopter small percentages in seventeen countries. Gentlest diss I've ever heard. That was amazing. Like they're well done for getting to half a million over the da, da. you're not talking about you Sid like beautiful like but like they, this is an amazing thing like they've hit half a million people and they've actually taken a, a stance of actually going over all of these different geographies to get the early adopters um, you know it is interesting that uh, you know I think uh, Tom Blomfield from Monzo talked recently about uh, 350,000 customers ish I think it was uh, at when I sort of went to one of the current account events so, like, the fact that Monza have managed to achieve 350 in one country and these guys have managed to achieve, uh, you know, super early adopters across that many countries, like, it's an interesting sort of apples and, you know, oranges kind of uh, equation type thing. But, you know, these guys are doing really good things. I know we've had uh, Valentin on the show a couple of times before and, you know, every indication is, and I think he said to you, Simon, last time you interviewed him, that they're going to come to the UK at some point. So it's going to be really interesting. I think we're, you know, we're like what season seven of game of thrones type territory now like i'm not sure who the white walker is anymore but you know by the time that actually n26 hits the uk shores then actually monzo and starling and all these guys are going to be pretty strong right it's a different way of doing customer acquisition as well as the challenger bank route we saw that uh challenger bank used to mean you would uh, buy up a local bank put your brand on it and then spend a lot on um, basically giving products out that were uh, not very profitable so uh, we saw certain types of accounts 
discounts, certain teaser rates, all this sort of thing to acquire a customer that, that you used to compete on price. Now we've kind of moved into a competing on service uh, type of approach and looking at that uh, that millennial or tech savvy user as being your primary customer. And for any bank to achieve 500,000 customers, uh, new cu- customers in Europe in the space of a couple of years is pretty good growth. Like, it, okay, so there are large banks with 10, 20 million customers out there, but it took them centuries to hit that and it and they grew with the economy this is by any stretch for this industry really quite rapid and it's an interesting bank it's one that within our product pulse you like how i'm giving a product shout out during this like it but within pulse one of the things that i actively go to in the u.s when i'm showing the product is n26 and for example the onboarding right the ability to do the video chat and and i think an account in under 15 minutes if i'm not mistaken so I mean, good on them. I mean, the song we went with was with the Proclaimers. What a good name for this, right? Five hundred miles, but but it fits. Um, our next story, I think we're going to fly by this one incredibly quick. But I'm going to throw it to Simon. It was in the Coin Telegraph, submitted by Barb McLean, who submits a ton um, into the into the application. Toronto receives its first Ethereum ATMs. Simon. Yeah, who cares? Like, <laughs> uh, my right, best so, response. So I'm going to say Ethereum is the cryptocurrency. Many of you have heard of it. A bit like uh, people are familiar with Bitcoin. You buy Bitcoin and speculating it will increase or decrease. Um, Ethereum was designed to be a competitor to Bitcoin, and it allows you to do a lot more. You can build software programs on top of it. It's designed to be a decentralized world computer. The idea of an ATM, I get it, right? Okay, so it's, this is the idea that uh, you have to be quite a sophisticated person to be able to use tools like Kraken or GDAX at Coinbase to acquire cryptocurrency. And there's a great article I saw earlier where um, I forget which outlet it was, but Middle America is buying Bitcoin because there's no other way to make money at the moment. Middle America is buying this because there's a real need for uh, a savings account or a way to make money when there are no jobs anymore, when the middle class is being hollowed out. And cryptocurrency has probably gone mainstream when people who have nothing to do with technology are buying it. An ATM, in theory, allows you to buy it. But also, we've seen these with Bitcoin forever, and they don't work. Nobody uses them. The companies don't make money. Come on, that, that that's like saying, like, you know, normal life doesn't work, so I'm going to believe in magic. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the... I, I can see why people are doing it but that just is crazy isn't it you know it's like but uh, but I, I think the the idea of this is actually pretty sound you know for me the idea of not having something where I can cash this out is like playing blackjack where I but can never the other get way money around. out you right? don't cash it out it's the other way you buy you put in your cash and you receive ether to your mobile phone what, so I can't go there and get my money out of this correct the well reverse. this is bullshit then we need to uh, move uh, so I have the perfect song it's by Cheryl it's called I Don't Care and I could read the lyrics but I can't because it's explicit you've got to no, check no, out no, I go think for that, it I think Ethereum ATMs could definitely be a thing if you want to sell high price coffees and beard, beard bar. trimming oh wow There's because the it's a I don't like it's coffee, a hipster <laughs> it's a hipster attracting diet coke yeah our hipster in the room doesn't like it so that just disproves it let's go to our last story <laughs> Why they gave me the porn story, I still haven't figured out. This one is from Bloomberg. It was submitted by, oh, Ollie, I love you, Fintech, McFintech Face. A billionaire porn king reinvents himself as Japanese startup guru. The song is easy. The divinals, I touch myself. Classic. <laughs> but this is actually a really good story. So let me ask you this. Think about the U.S. Who would you say is the the guru when it comes to startups or um, new innovation? Say Elon Musk. That's an easy one. U.K. Like Richard Branson or somebody like uh, yeah, that, I guess. Yeah, I, I kind of thought of Sir James Dyson, but then I kind of yeah, felt Dyson, weird. Yeah. I, I was going to go with Jason. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. Well, yeah, there, there was a, been a few awards recently that might indicate that Jason might be that guy. I, well, well, this guy's fascinating. His name is, I'm going to slaughter this, folks, so I apologize, Keisha Kamenea, which is even close. Oh, I'm so glad to have you, Sam. Thank like, you. They was used to be just me doing this, yeah. but thank you. Well, he's worth $3.5 billion. What I love about this guy, he's been around since the 90s, started a, a porn site back then. He doesn't allow his picture to be taken. Which is pretty interesting. That's ironic. Isn't that? <laughs> and, and it is Japan. If you've ever been to Japan and we're talking about porn, just let that go forward. But he's evolved the business to the point where one of the most prestigious universities in Japan asked him to come and speak. And he's seen as a social entrepreneur. So it tells you how much we've moved. But we were talking about this in a break. The influence porn has on technology and in banking. Do you guys know who, um, the, who really drove the idea of accepting online payments on the web was? It was from the U.S., a company called DLT, I believe that was the name of it. 
um, is still around today, but it was based on porn sites. The ability to make payments online, its birth was porn in the U.S. Dang. Yeah, I, I mean, it's that the the underbelly of the internet that no one talks about, but has driven so much from images, video, streaming, online payments. You know, uh, the, if you look at the top 10, top 20 websites in the world, none of them are porn because they're they're um, left out. So an interesting point. We were meeting with, I can't say the name, but um, one of the largest banks in in the world. The CEO was sitting with us just down the hall, and he was talking about their revenue um, and their profit after everything, I think was like $3.5 billion. This guy's company, DMM, $3.6 billion. Dang. Put that in perspective. Porn pays, man. Porn pays. Porn like, pays the, well. the interesting thing that, that I see on this one is, like, it isn't the first time that, like, porn has affected banking. I don't know if you guys remember, but, like, back in 2004, there was the, the former chief executive of Bank of Ireland who admitted to watching pornographic material in his office via his bank PC and sadly left his job reasonably quickly after that one so porn has definitely influenced banking in quite a major ways oh come on you took the negative route there i mean i was going for porn is an innovative force in the world yeah and you just you just yeah but i i'm not sure that's the best use of use of video streaming that you can kind of come up with type thing you know i'm not saying like doing mortgages over video streaming is any better but uh but definitely not streaming kind of half naked dudes well if you look though where his his company dmm and google them um, and, and don't be afraid, by the way, to Google them. It's okay. They have moved into all sorts, including robotics, including online education. Um, he really has expanded that company and his footprint. And again, like I said, it would be the equivalent of him being asked to come and speak at Oxford, right, with a, with a group of folks that look just like me, a little bit gray. And, and again, seen as somebody who's contributed to society. Yes, but, David, who has no hair. Yes. But, but like, you know. You're the expert in this one, and I don't want to make an accusation. Like, not like you're some sort of weird porn addict, but like when, like last time we caught up in Luxembourg, you you literally did a, a whole presentation about what banking can learn from porn, right? Well, it's the influence that porn has had, and it's just not on banking; it's technology as a whole. You go back to the printing press. Um, you know, we we attribute books and the printing press to Gutenberg's Bible. Um, yeah, a little bit. There was actually a pornographic book that went out that the printing press exploded across Europe to create that. And it was fascinating. The people that used the book, it's called The Seven Ways, were actually the upper class, were, were royalty that had it. And there was a pope that came along and lost his mind and destroyed every copy of it. And he wasn't going into the homes of the poor. He was going into the homes of kings and queens to destroy every copy of that. So you have that. You have you look at what's happened with um, film, right? You take a look at... Well, take a look at it, but I guess that's, that, that works. You look at film, you look at movies, you look at video. Um, and again, I'm not joking. You look at robotics, you look at AI, you look at where we're moving to. We're going to ent- enter some interesting ethical situations and, and where this takes us to. So I, I think that's a great place to wrap <laughs> for this show. Um, another great show. Thank you, everybody, for, for your contributions here, even you, David. Um, as with every week, we don't have time to cover every news story that's submitted, but we want to encourage you, please keep going out to fintechinsidernews.com, even you, Fintech McPickey, whatever your name is, Ollie, on there. Read more about the stories we discussed, and, and it really prompts us to look into those new spaces, and we really appreciate it. You can also sign up to become a contributor and join the discussion with everyone on the podcast and other fantastic names from the fintech world. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook on our Fintech Insider page. If you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe. That's incredibly important. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you're going to do that, give us a review. And we highly encourage that to be five stars. You might even get a shout out on the show. Thanks for listening.